5, and we'll begin there, and then we'll be turning over to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John. We've been looking at the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus, and I want, in looking at the one that we see recorded in John 21, to bring alongside of it one that is certainly not post-resurrection, but you'll notice the parallels as this really constitutes that initial call of our Lord's disciples. But Luke 5, beginning in the opening verse, And it came to pass as the people pressed upon Him, that is Jesus, to hear the Word of God. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners which were in the other ship that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. And so also was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now turning to John 21, and seeking to, I guess, collect our thoughts around the months and years intervening. After these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed He Himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of His disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciple came and disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits dragging the net with fishes. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, 
and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Well, amen. Lend our reading. Again, trusting the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. I'll ask you again to bow your heads and your hearts together with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come together again under the public reading of your word. Lord, we have lifted corporate testimony to you of praise and of confession. And we pray that each of these would not just be vain repetition. And we ask now that you will help us, Lord, to quiet our hearts, Lord, still our thoughts. So much of this life, Lord, beyond even the, the constant pressures and the temptations of sin from the world and the devil, our flesh, and even the responsibilities of life that are right and good and necessary in themselves, Lord, help us to set them aside. Give us an eternal perspective. Use the moments of this Lord's day. We might go forth into our varied labors, encouraged and strengthened to bear testimony in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. John 21 serves as a precious epilogue to this unique gospel. There are certain things and purposes that John obviously has in mind in these closing words. One of them is to correct a rumor, which we'll read Lord willing next time, a rumor that had spread among the church that Jesus has said that John wouldn't die until Christ returned. And John's very careful to point out, Jesus didn't say that. He said to Peter, what if I will? Because Peter's asking, the Lord's told him what he's going to do. We'll again see that next time. And after Peter learns of that, some striking things he learns, he turns and asks about John, what will this man do? And Jesus says, what if I will that he live till I come? What's that to thee? And John says, Jesus didn't say I was going to live till he came. He said to Peter, what if I will that he do so? So certainly John is in his advancing years at this point correcting that rumor that is spread upon the people. Another obvious purpose of the chapter, perhaps the central purpose of this epilogue, is to record that conversation with Peter that we didn't read today and we'll come to look at next time. But obviously John is careful as an eyewitness here, to record these events that we have read of today. As this band of seven of the twelve are met together, again, interestingly, just a group representing 
that body of disciples is spoken of as his disciples, verse 14. Perhaps we should pause, I don't know, is this sermon 5 or 6 now into the post-resurrection appearances and it says this is the third one of those. Well, this is the third time that he has presented himself to the disciples as a group. That corporate body that he's formally presented himself to, those personal encounters not numbered among the three that John has recorded from chapter 20 and now 21, so carefully enumerating. But here, these disciples are gathered together. And to those familiar with the Gospels and those of us here today that have read that previous account, this account by the Sea of Galilee reminds us of that earlier account, not merely because the Lord met there with His disciples, but the peculiar nature of the miracle that He performed in their presence and how He used that in their lives and in their experience. I mean, that opening chapter that we read in Luke, He speaks of them from henceforth, not catching fish, but catching men. trying to remember the little chorus in Sunday school when I was a little boy. If you know it, don't start singing it now. But anyway, to be fishers of men. And so these disciples obviously are come to some thought with regard to that event and the one they've just witnessed and seen. Jesus on that day uses Peter's boat as his pulpit and launches out and teaches the crowd gathered on the shore. Afterward, he tells Peter to launch out into the deep and there's that miraculous draft of fish the first time. I remember preaching on that many years ago as we looked at the life of Peter. I just had the thought of that unorthodox method of fishing. Normally fishermen fished at night and in the very early hours of the morning and they fished near the shore where the the schools of fish would be running in the shallows. And Jesus tells them to launch out into the deep and by this point the sun is high and the day is upon them. Peter knows this isn't the way it's done. And he says, nevertheless, at thy word, there's at least some humility in this boastful, impetuous Peter. And he's taken back by that draft of fish as we read and as we'll see perhaps more in a little while. I say it would be impossible for the disciples not to remember that day and to bring that incident together with what they've just experienced. And in fact, here we see that John has already done that or recounts doing that as he is the first to realize that it's Jesus. When these men had first left their nets to become Jesus' disciples, well, they thought they'd entered the ministry. Well, instead, they almost wrote and would suggest here they'd entered seminary. No, it wasn't so much seminary, but a more intense school of instruction. Not only in those years with Christ as He taught the people, as He unfolded from the Old Testament Scriptures and unfolded from His own lips the ministry of the Messiah Himself. I say they not only were taught truth as it were, but they also were given the more difficult task of learning more about themselves learning more about their own hearts. And how had that lesson or those lessons come in the last couple of weeks in spades, as we might say? And so here these men, again, 
are brought in awe and wonder in the presence of Jesus. We should perhaps pause and give some comments on Peter calling these men to him and saying, I go fishing. Preachers and some commentators have gotten a lot of mileage out of this instruction and this statement of Peter. Was Peter right or was he wrong? Some have not drawn back to even say Peter is at this point in apostasy. (laughs) He's going back to his old life. He's given up on Jesus. I find that impossible to conclude. Do you think of all that has transpired? I think this criticism of Peter and then of course the others following him misses the whole point of these days after the resurrection. It misses the whole tenor of where they are in these times. These men have been humbled. They have been certainly overwhelmed with sorrow at the crucifixion and their perplexities, but they have seen the risen Christ. They know that He's risen from the dead. I don't think Peter and the others are to blame here. They've gone back to Galilee at the instruction of Jesus. He told them to go to Galilee. He was going to meet with them again there. They do it. They obey. Well, what are they to do waiting? Are they to twiddle their thumbs? Are they to go over to somebody else's house for dinner? Peter's using his time. They're tradesmen. They have their equipment, their vessels there. And you think of this perspective too. There were those we read in the Gospels that followed Christ and followed the disciples, Mary Magdalene and the other women, serving and ministering to their needs. Well, those things have stopped. The itinerant ministry, the outdoor meetings, the need of lodging, the need of others to prepare food. Those needs don't exist now. I don't think Peter is wrong at all. I don't think the others. I've often wondered about the ones that weren't fishermen join in with them. What's this? It's a rope. Oh, what's this? It's a net. What's that? It's a wave. Oh, my stomach. I don't know. Maybe the other disciples were familiar with the boats, but there they are. So I don't think these men are in great sin at this point. They're waiting. They're waiting for their Lord. They're waiting for further instructions. There are other perspectives on this chapter. I thought, and even started, at least in my mind, preparing a list of the different interpretations of the 153 fish. I was amazed that one respectable modern commentator, a man that I enjoy very much, and a great New Testament scholar of our day, he took a long time going through some of these fanciful interpretations. The mathematics, there were mathematical terms that I had never heard that some men were using to get different places out of 153 fish and Hebrew words and numbers affixed to the different letters and then switching that to Greek and then multiplying that number by this number and coming up with that. And I'm just not sure that that's exactly what John is getting at and what the Lord wants us to consider in John chapter 21. There can be over-spiritualizing of the Word I think that occurs most often when you go beyond what we would call spiritualizing and applying the text in a proper way into allegorizing. 
trying to find objective truth there in the symbols that isn't there. Well, I point out those false views of spiritualizing the passage because I want to do a little spiritualizing on the passage today myself. I trust it will be in the realm of appropriate spiritual application of what we find in the Word. What I want to do today in reading these incidents together, I wanted to read them both so we would understand something of the similarities and and why the disciples would be thrust back in their own thoughts and their hearts to that very beginning and their call and the outset of Christ's earthly ministry and what Christ is doing for them here as He meets with them. But it's not so much the similarities, but the differences that I want to look at today. And again, from a spiritual, and I trust a right and reverent perspective. And so, if you will, think with me on these differences. And for each of them, I just want to make one simple, and I trust, gospel statement. And the first one is this. The Lord is present when He's absent. I say that because one of the dissimilarities, one of the differences in these two accounts and these two miracles is that in the first one, the Lord Jesus is in Peter's boat with them. He's used that boat as His pulpit. We often comment on the, the different nature of assembly and addressing a crowd in the ancient Near East to our modern day. In those days, the crowd stood and the preacher sat. I wonder how that would be. It would be like I was speaking last week about the ease with which I can stay awake in church now because I'm standing up talking. Um, but... The crowd is standing on the shore and Jesus uses the boat to go out a little bit to be able to see them all for them to hear Him. And He's basically sitting there but using Peter's boat as a pulpit. But then He asks Peter and the others follow, launch out into the deep. Let down your nets for a draft. And Peter's overwhelmed. He thinks this isn't the way to do it, but this is a carpenter. He's not a fisherman. But, He's someone we've been taken with and we're interested in seeing who and what He is. So Peter obeys. But the Lord, as I say, with them there. And they would remember that. But here they are alone. Here they are waiting on the Lord to visit them. At this point, they don't know that this man speaking to them from the shore is even Jesus. And the Lord performs in many ways the same miracle for them from the shore as He did when He was with them that time in the boat. Well, I say perhaps it is stretching our application, but perhaps not. What are these men about to embark in or upon? They're going to go forth into ministry. One of these post-resurrection appearances that we'll see is what we describe as the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. To call those men instead of fish into the kingdom. But Jesus isn't going with them. Jesus is ascending to the Father. He, as He said in the upper room that night, as the Father hath sent Me, so send I you. But I won't be there. Well, the disciples had heard, and you think about the Spirit 
and the applying of the words they had heard to their hearts that they didn't understand at the time. How much of that instruction in the upper room was with regard to the outpouring in the ministry of God the Holy Spirit? A lot of our understanding in our systematic theology studies about the work of the Holy Spirit comes from Christ's statements to these men just a few days before in the upper room. Well, These men are going to learn by experience as well as by the letter of the law what it is for Jesus not to physically be present with them, but yet to hear His promise that I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. But we, like these disciples, do not have the tangible bodily presence of the risen Christ in our midst day by day, or even Lord's day by Lord's day. But as I said, the Lord is present even when He's absent. There's never a moment that the Lord's presence is not with us. I was writing, don't ask Dr. Pollock, but I could add the word belatedly writing uh, my devotional for the campers for Friday morning, which will be the morning after, Lord willing, I speak on the Thursday night, giving our campers a little heads up here for their homework that day. But it's on really the thought life. And you think of the psalmist and his wrestlings with the truth that the Lord is always present. That the Lord understands His thoughts afar off. The Lord is present even when He's absent. And the applications of that I say are many, and of course that, and what I would hope the campers to be drawn to in that is what, what a help it is with regard to temptation and sin. You know, people want to be away from other people, sneak around and do their things in the shadows. It's the way all people used to want to sin, but our culture has changed that. Sin in the daylight and Make the people that live uprightly be ashamed and make them go hide. Well, that's the world we live in today. But it's not so much just that check and that help for us in the point of temptation and sin, but the encouragement that it is. We're not alone as we stand, quote, alone in this generation. We're not alone as we testify to the individual that the Lord opens doors for us to speak to. We're not alone when we come into this place and sit under the preaching of the Word and ask for the Spirit to help us understand. For the Spirit to give us grace to wrestle with our own thoughts and our own hearts and our own lives. The Lord is with us. The Lord, I say, is present when He's absent. These men may have marveled at the miracle in that first miraculous draft of fish when they were first called away from their occupations to be His disciples and leave their nets and their boats and go follow Him. He's right there with them in the ship. But He's not with them this time. They don't even know at this point that He's the one over on the shore. They learned that as it were after.
The Lord is present even when He's absent. The second difference is that the nets on this occasion don't break. When you read the first account, the nets are broken. The fish are so heavy and so many. The statement I would suggest to you here in looking at this difference is the kingdom will succeed no matter what. The kingdom will succeed no matter what. I remember when I first was taken to my own personal reading years ago with this portion and the little differences between these two very similar accounts. The nets here don't break. It's not to allegorize. It's not to try and figure out the significance of the number 153. It's just that the Lord does cause us to pause. John emphasizes this point in his record of the events. Before the nets were breaking, here the nets don't break. In some ways, I think as we look at this, of the experience of these men. During those years of our Lord's earthly ministry, they went forth, our Lord was preaching, He was bringing truth to them with regard to His own person and His own work and of their own need and their own condition. Think of John 6 when He preached a little bit about total depravity and sovereignty and salvation. And the crowds went away from Him. Didn't want to walk with Him anymore. It was such a, an exodus that He looks at the twelve and says, will you also go away? The Lord hadn't had, as it were, a very successful earthly ministry. What were these men going to meet with? They could have, from every human perspective, thought, if people didn't listen when He was here, what are they going to do when He's gone? And it's just us. I mean, you remember... We read in Acts, the the chief priests marvel that these are unlearned and ignorant men. doesn't mean they're dumb as a rock. It just means that they're uneducated. They're not professionals. It wasn't their vocation and their, their training to preach and teach people in the temple. They weren't ecclesiastics and professionals. No, they had something far more important. They had truth. And they had the Spirit of God. But I say these men doubtless are wrestling. What's it going to be? He, he talked to us that night about it being needful for Him to go away. He talked about us being sent after He's gone. I mean, if things turn out the way they did when He was here, He was performing such miracles when He brought Lazarus out of the tomb, what will it be for us? Well, I say the kingdom will succeed no matter what. Christ spoke about the gates of hell not being able to prevail against it. 
These were men that we turn the page in Acts and read at one point or criticized and brought before yet other Gentile rulers and described as men that turned the world upside down. We need some people today to turn the world upside down because it is upside down. It needs to be turned right side up again. But to have such an impact that they would be described in that way. I say here, John, he doesn't seek to have us get out our protractors and our, what did they call those things, slide rules to figure out what 153 is supposed to be telling us. But yet these men are amazed. Look at all the fish. And we had something similar before and the nets are breaking, but this time they're not breaking. Some commented even about Peter. Because you read early in the account of several of them struggling with the net and the fish. And then you read here as they've gotten closer that Peter went up and drew the net to land. Maybe a good adrenaline rush after he knew it was Jesus. Well, I don't know that we need to try and devotionalize or comment on those things. But I say John and the others are impressed. The nets didn't break. It's remarkable. Well, whether they were to grasp all of this at the moment or not, the truth is indeed the same. The kingdom will succeed no matter what. It's truth. find it interesting, I often do, in our successive New Testament readings, and how often there's a connection with the message in the morning. Gamaliel's counsel. Here's a man that's been numbered among them that crucified Jesus. But he said, listen, there have been other guys that have come along before and rallied groups around themselves and when they perished or they were stoned or put to death, it all died out. If this thing is of men, it's just going to die out. It's of God. You're not going to put it out anyway. The kingdom will succeed no matter what. But the last thought I'd suggest to you is taken from the fact that Peter, who I don't think we should understand is entirely naked, I'm always taken back with that translation in the authorized version, but he has his outer garments loosed from him so that he might work. Uh, perhaps we might describe it as wearing shorts or undergarments and laboring there. But Peter grabs his outer garments and he jumps out of the boat and he he makes a beeline to the shore. Once John has whispered in his ear, it's the Lord. What did Peter do in that first account that we read? He fell on his face and said to the Lord, depart from me. The third thought I would suggest to you is this. The work of the Spirit always produces reverence. The work of the Spirit always produces reverence. You go back to that first account and 
I won't uh, have us turn it up again. But you read that narrative and you see Peter who is, he's obeyed, he's said, and I think it's a, a worthy thing to repeat, nevertheless, at thy word I'll let down the net. But everything he expects, and he even was bold enough to voice an objection to the Lord, everything he expects is going to go the other direction. And of course the Lord miraculously brings in the fish. And Peter's overwhelmed. He's convicted. He's embarrassed. He falls on his face before Christ. John Calvin comments that he is awed at the miracle, but he's he's overawed at the person, at, at the presence of Jesus. I love Matthew Henry's comments there. I don't always read Matthew Henry. But he made the comment there with regard to Peter. Those that the Lord would have at the nearest to be with Him. He first convinces that they don't deserve to be anywhere near Him at all. I may have paraphrased Henry there a little bit. But isn't that the truth? Isn't that the Gospel? Those the Lord purposes to use. Those the Lord purposes to draw near to Himself. He persuades them of who and what they are apart from Him. And they're worthy recipients of His wrath instead of mercy. Instead of grace. And certainly instead of being vessels that He chooses to use. So here I say, we see a contrast. And that first miracle, that first draft of fish in Peter's own boat, Peter falls on his face and says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And this time, and you think of this, what sins has Peter got in his mind when he says that on the shores of the Sea of Galilee two and some months, years before? What sins has Peter put on very public display in the last two weeks? We might say it this way. In the first realization, Peter says, I'm too sinful to be in your presence. In the second realization, he says, I am too sinful not to be in your presence. And others put it this way Which is the greater reverence? I don't know. But I say this the work of the Spirit always produces. Reverence. Whether we fall on our faces and hide our faces from Him, what does He do? He shows us Himself. 
comes alongside. And here, Peter, with much more sin on display, has a little more understanding. There's a great lesson that's coming later this day. Lord willing, look at it next week. I fear that portion is often twisted and misunderstood as well. But Peter now, Peter that has with cursing denied Him after bragging that He wouldn't. And even putting Himself above the others. They might leave you. They might deny you. Never me. You can always count on me. This Peter runs to his side. The work of the Spirit always produces reverence. The applications of that truth are far and wide. I think you can take that and apply it to modern Christian worship. It's not to deny the Lord's people and all the different questions and places and topics we could bring up underneath it. But I'll say this. People may wrestle with definitions. People may wrestle with different practices. But the presence of Christ, the work of the Spirit, never produces flippancy. It never produces irreverence. It never produces antinomianism. It never produces a legal self-righteous spirit. It produces gospel hearts. And gospel hearts are reverent. Think of the reverence perhaps in a very different sense than a high church service. But the reverence around that campfire that Lord willing we come to look at next Lord's Day as our Lord in great grace drew near to these men that were dear to Him. Well, I trust we haven't stretched the limits of propriety in our spiritual applications. But I do think the differences between that first miraculous draft when these men are first called, not to ministry, but called to school, and now with a renewed call to go forth into the world and preach the risen Christ. May the Lord add His own blessings to these thoughts from His Word today. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful today for everything that You have chosen to include in Your Word. For to cause us even to pause and think through the experience of these men. To try and put ourselves in their place and even the thoughts and the memories that must have flooded their minds that morning as they looked through the mist rising off the lake. and They hear this one on the shore speaking and piece by piece come to understand that it's the Lord drawing near. Lord, prosper Your Word. We're needy disciples. We are weak and often deceived disciples as these men were. Perhaps never more deceived than in thoughts with regard to ourselves and our own strengths. 
And so we ask that you might take up the word, apply gospel thoughts to our hearts from it. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.